Let's pray as we uh, look to the Lord this morning. We're going to be back in Mark chapter 2 and 3 this morning. I call the title of my message, Your Lord of the Sabbath, with a question mark at the end of it. So as we continue on through the Gospel of Mark, let's pray and ask for his blessing on the word today. And our Lord's table at the end of the message also will be observing that. So I encourage you to be thinking along those lines as the men come to take care of that at the end of the service. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We are, uh, <clears throat> we are very, very thankful for um, your hand upon our church. We think, of, um, we think of John Stevens, and we just know that been through a lot. His family is here today. We are so thankful they're here with us again, and pray for comfort for them. And with uh, Sharon being really, we would say, promoted to heaven and in the wonderful, most uh, imaginable, unimaginable place in all the universe is with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless them, we pray, even now as we worship uh, together with them today also. And, uh, and then, Lord, we just want to thank you for grandparents and great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents and so on today. It is a wonderful blessing to celebrate that. It, it's something that we can do in America more often than most places because of health care. And we live longer, but it's not always been that way. And in many places of the world, the children don't even know their grandparents, in some cases, not even their parents. But we are blessed, and may your hand of blessing continue, we pray, on our families here at church, our Sunday school is there to encourage them, and the kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, the generational thing the Bible says, that we might, as the scripture says in the Psalms, declare your wonders to the next generation and the generations that come. That would be great-grandparents and so on to do that. May that be, may that be our desire to continue parenting spiritually in the days ahead also. Lord, Lord, we want to pray this morning too. We know that sometimes there's uh, health issues, there's uh, spiritual issues, there's other issues that need to be addressed in prayer. And we pray, Lord, for the unspoken issues, if there are any this morning, as we come and as we prepare for the Lord's table later also, to prepare our hearts to be thinking along these lines of your Lordship, even of the Sabbath and of the Lord's Day today what that means so we pray for your understanding of these truths this morning as we look into this passage that we pray today in Christ's name amen well if you take your Bibles we're going to start out and just read through this text very interesting text I had to ask myself do I want to do a split message on part of one chapter and the other but as I read through that I could see they were very clearly connected and so we, uh, we left off before Christ had done many amazing things and everything that he did, all the miracles, were really to affirm who he was as God. They were to authenticate who he was. He started off by exercising teaching and the people were absolutely amazed at his teaching. They were just totally blown away. That was the first aspect of it. Uh, he exercised authority over demons who knew who he was, who were fearful of him even knew where he came from, and he, by a word, just cast them out, showed who he was as God also. He also, um, he also had authority over small things like fevers of, his, of Peter's mother-in-law and um, healed her instantly too. But from the very smallest of things to the largest of things like leprosy that was really that kind of uncurable kind of disease of the day, and, uh, but he touched the man, which we would never do, but he did, and the man was instantly healed also. And he forgave. He also showed his authority in the area of forgiveness. He could forgive sin, but they said, only God can forgive sin. Well, hello, that's who he was. He was God. Um, and he forgave the man's sin. The man and his guys that lowered him tried to lower him through the roof on a pallet. 
were totally amazed. They never said a word, and the man got up and walked away, totally healed there. All to just show that Christ really was God. Not everyone that was healed was actually born again or saved. Some were, especially the, um, the man on the pallet that we looked at before. And then he also called his disciples to him. And gradually, these guys were being called. Levi was the one we looked at last week. His name is also Matthew. He was a tax collector. He was hated by the Jews because he was a Jew and collecting taxes for Rome. And so, uh, and so Levi gets a new name called Matthew and writes a new book, the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Jesus had the authority to call these people out even though everybody else probably wouldn't do that. They wouldn't think that was a good choice. So he did many things, and the other Gospels sometimes mention things that we don't see here in Mark, but now we see what happens next after the situation with Levi. Starting in chapter 2 and verse 23, the question of the Sabbath is here. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. <clears throat> The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, what are they doing? What is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he had his companions be hungry? And how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now in chapter 3 and verse 1, a couple of verses, <clears throat> He entered again into a synagogue, and the man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? They kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. This is an interesting passage. I find it very encouraging, especially as we get down to the end. It's very encouraging here. It's in two parts. First part, of course, is, is right here in chapter 2, and then that last part is in chapter 3. The first part is where, where Jesus is saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He is declaring it. It's the declaration of the fact that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, something that they hadn't heard before. So it's really declared here, but then when we get to the next portion of it in chapter 3, it's described or it's sort of like an illustration in that particular section. We'll look at the first part right now. Each part is in four sections as we go through the story and find out what's really happening here. The Lord over the Sabbath is declared here starting in verse 23 where they're harvesting on the Sabbath. They're walking through these grain fields, it says. Wherever Jesus was before this, when he was teaching and so forth, and he called Levi, which was near Capernaum, obviously, uh, he was going somewhere else. This is another time. This is about, uh, actually, probably a year, a little more than a year into his ministry now. He's been to Jerusalem. He's already come back. And uh, time is moving along into this three-year period of his ministry. But his disciples are following him. Many, many of his disciples were following, so much so they could not even go into synagogues, largely because there were so many people. And the Pharisees were following also because they were not liking what they were hearing. 
So it says that it happened that they were going through this grain field at that time on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. Sabbath means seventh. And so that was the seventh day. It was a day of worship, the day that was ordained by God as a day of rest and worship in the creation narrative back in the book of Genesis. And the Jews had made much more out of it than God had, but they're following him, and he's walking along, and he's got some of his disciples with him. We don't know exactly who here, but they're making their way along. And actually, when you walked in those days along the walkways, they didn't have roads like we have necessarily. Oftentimes, you'd go right through a person's grain field, and there'd be a little path right through it, and you could walk right through it. Sometimes there were rows between the grain. It's not like the big fields that we have that are planted by wide uh, cedars that would make a big swath as wide as this room when they're planting. It wasn't like that then. They threw the grain out and maybe brushed over it and then uh, it would come up. It was very much more irregular. But they walked through these grain fields and they were kind of hungry. They didn't have any, they didn't have any um, rest stops along the way. You could go into McDonald's and those kind of places like we do. It wasn't easy, so sometimes it was just understood that you would eat some of the grain that went along with you. It was easy to get. It was Jewish fast food. You could think of it that way. But it was the seventh day, or the Sabbath day, and that was instituted by God as they went through, and the disciples were picking little heads of grain. I brought a head of grain, just in case you're not sure what it looks like. It looks something like that. Um, this is uh, from our family wheat fields. And um, this is wheat. There were other kinds. There was barley and so forth. Different times of the year they were planted. Some translations say they were, they were gathering corn. Corn is another term for grain. It probably was not the corn that we think of. It was probably this, most likely. But they would pick it up and um, they would um, thrash it and eat it. And the way they thrashed it is they put it in their hands. I'll talk about that in a moment. Because we come down to the next verse, verse 24 now. In verse 24... There's a question that comes up about this Sabbath. And the Pharisees were the ones who were asking. They were following. They were kind of keeping an eye on things. And they said, look, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Why are you eating this grain? Why are you thrashing this out here? And actually, like I said, the Old Testament law permitted you to do that if you were walking along. It wasn't a problem to pick up a little bit of grain and thrash it and eat it to, for a little bit of sustenance. It was a courtesy to the travelers. Deuteronomy 23 speaks about that. You just could not use a sickle. A sickle uh, was something big that we used to have one on the farm. It had a blade about this long. And you could, you could take a swath of grain down at one time like that. You just couldn't do that and then haul off big bundles or shocks of grain like that in that day. And um, so as they walked along, they were being careful. They were only just picking heads of grain here and there. And then what they would do is they would, they would roll it like this, and it would, it would kind of crumble because it was very, very dry. This one's not quite so dry. But it was very, very dry because in that, that air in the summertime, it's pretty hot, and it would be fall all apart, the grain would come, come away from it, there would be a lot of chaff inside, then you blow and the chaff would fly out and you would have just grain left in your hand. You put it in your, put it in your mouth and you could chew it and we would chew it and make what we call wheat gum. We wouldn't swallow it, we would chew it till it becomes like gum. But you could eat it too. And it's good. It's what bread's made out of, you know. And it's uh, full of um, actually protein, that kind of wheat is. So, uh, in, in, spite of all the, in spite of all the problems with bread these days and people not um, eating it, it still was the staff of life, and it's mentioned here. So, the Pharisees were saying, look, what are you doing? It's not lawful to eat on the Sabbath. In other words, they had all kinds of laws. The Sabbath was the seventh day, but they added a whole bunch of laws. You were supposed to rest on the Sabbath. That was the idea from what God said when it was created. And of course, when you have the Ten Commandments coming along, it's listed in there too. It's an idea of a day to, to rest and to worship. But the, the Pharisees and the, um, the Sadducees and the rabbis especially added all kinds of rules and regulations to this. 
one after another. They had some of the rules they had were that you, you could not carry a burden on the Sabbath if it weighed more than two figs. That was your measure of weight. Couldn't carry more. That's not very much, is it? And um, reaping, uh, they interpreted to being plucking, like just like I was showing, just a few grains here, instead of, instead of uh, like harvesting large amounts. So they thought just to take a few would be wrong. That was some of the laws that they had added to the Sabbath. And so rubbing it in your hands would be work. And you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so that's sin also. And their book, they had a book called the Book of Jubilee, says that, that it was even, to th- even sinful to think about work on the Sabbath. And, you know, I try not to think about work on Sundays. You know, uh, after the day's over, you need a little rest. It's not a bad idea not to think, but you're not required to, and it's not a sin if you think about it. You couldn't travel. They had, a, they had a law about how far you went on the Sabbath. I've heard varying versions of this somewhere around a half a mile or 1,100 meters is another one. You could not go more than 1,100 meters on the Sabbath from your home if you went one step more than that than you had sinned. You'd have a hard time getting home, wouldn't you, if you went that far. So there was all this guilt that they were putting on people and there was... They're just one after another rules. They were, they were categorized, they were added to, they were written down in some places and so forth, and it was becoming burdensome on the people when they were hungry. And they were hungry, these disciples, as they went along. And it would have been nice for them to have a little something to sustain them, you know. Now we come down to verse 25. In verse 25, the third movement here in this section Jesus answers their question, and I just am amazed at how, um, how wise he was in doing this. He really, I guess you could say more or less, trips them up. And that had already happened a couple of times before. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. So it says that he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he had compassion and became hungry? Just to ask, the, he's asking the Pharisees this. He's, Didn't you read that? Don't you know your Old Testament? Which would have been really a kind of a convicting question for them, wouldn't it? They wouldn't like that at all because that would mean that They didn't know their Bible, and they were the people that were supposed to know their Bible. It really was in their face just a little bit there. So he talks about entering the house of God that David did. David had done that in the time of Abathar, and there's a high priest there. And This is the time that David was being pursued by Saul, King Saul. David was a younger man. Saul was jealous of him, so David went with his men. They had to flee. And they became hungry and they came to Nob. They didn't come to Jerusalem. They didn't come to the temple. They came to the tabernacle, which was at Nob at the time because there was no temple yet. And um, there was a priest there and there was a common thing called the the showbread that was put on the, kind of like on a table, a table for showbread inside of the tabernacle, the place of worship where the Jews had. And... There was bread in there, and David comes, and it says he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread. So there was bread that was in there. Actually, you can read about it sometime in 1 Samuel chapter 21. There's the whole story for you right there. So what basically David did is he came up, the priest was there, and he said, look, my men are hungry. Is there anything we can eat? And the priest said, well, there really is only one thing we've got here, and that's the... That's the showbread that they had, and they would put it on a, they'd put it on a table in the tabernacle, and there were 12 loaves of it. Each loaf weighed around, I think, six pounds of, of uh, flour went into this thing, six and a quarter pounds. And they would, uh, they would have it sitting there all week. They would put it there when it was warm, and it would be there, and then when the week was up, which would be the Sabbath, and this was a Sabbath day when David was there, they would take the fresh newly baked bread and put it in the place of the old and take the old 12 loaves out and the priest would eat it. 
priest would eat it then. So the priest said to David there, if you, uh, if you follow the Old Testament story there, um, the priest said, we don't have anything but the, the show bread. We put the new bread in, but we only have the show, and that's what we would normally eat. He said, but you can have that. But only the priests were normally eat it. Only they were the ones who were supposed to eat it, generally speaking. But this was a critical situation. David's men were very hungry. Their lives may have been in danger and so forth. And so they, um, they gave the bread to them. So when Jesus tells these Pharisees this, he says, haven't you ever read what happened to David back there in 1 Samuel? How they became hungry and they went into the house of God and all there was was the showbread which only the priest should eat but the priest gave it to them and they ate it and it wasn't a problem then. So what's the problem with us grinding up a little grain in our hands? You know, it's kind of what he's saying. If David did it, David the great you know, figure of Jewish history, the great king that was beloved and so forth and so on, was an amazing thing for them. They wouldn't have had no problem with that, but they did with Jesus. Jesus had them, though. And Jesus caught them once again. So really the analogy here in this little story was that just as Saul had rejected David and David was really on the run and forced him out of hunger to run off somewhere and go to the tabernacle at the place called Nob, and to take the showbread, which the priest actually gave to him. So just as, um, as Saul rejected David, therefore, they were essentially saying that the Pharisees had rejected Christ and forced him to go walk through the grain fields and take some food also, which was no problem in the Old Testament. But it's a problem for the Pharisees because they added all these laws. They added all these laws. The book of Matthew adds, it says, if I say to you that something greater than the temple is here, Jesus was claiming deity in this situation, I think, here. So uh, he brings that in in just a little bit more. And they were not in the temple, they were not in the temple, they were just in the tabernacle here, which was lesser, but the temple would come. And um, Christ is greater than our traditions. Christ is greater than our rules. Christ is greater than the laws we sometimes put even on worship. So then in verse 27 and 28, we have the last part of this chapter here. Verse 27 and 28, um, he's declaring the lordship over the Sabbath. This is really big. Jesus said to them, Sabbath was made for man, and it was because God made the Sabbath on the seventh day after the creation week, and then said, uh, it's time to rest, it's time to rest, you know. But it was made for man, God didn't need to rest, obviously, but it was made for man, and so not man for the Sabbath, but they had made it just like the latter, not man, they'd made the Sabbath for man, but man for the Sabbath. But then he says, then he says in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's big. That is really huge here. First, I want to stop for a moment and ask you, we don't worship on the Sabbath, do we? We worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And uh, we always have to ask ourselves, what rules do we put on the Lord's Day that really aren't from God? It's something to think about just a little bit. Jesus was declaring his authority over the Sabbath here, and that's very important because as he declared his authority over the Sabbath, we remember the Sabbath was created by God in the Old Testament. So if Jesus had authority over the Sabbath, what does that say about Jesus? He is God. He is God. That's what it says. All things have come into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being, John 1, 3, the famous passage that then equates Christ there as um, the word of God, too. So, you see, the Lord had the Sabbath there for a reason, and the Sabbath was actually there to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. 
Well, they missed the point. They missed the point. They added so many rules and ceremonial things and regulations to the ceremonies that God had put. There were some ceremonies. The ceremonial, ceremonial law was for Israel to depict what was coming. And it would depict that largely on the Sabbath as it pictured the, the lamb that was sacrificed and all those sacrifices. It would depict the coming of Christ in Calvary and his death on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as you think of the Lord's table this morning, think about that just a little bit. So he is superior over the Sabbath just as God was, and he says, I am Son of Man, I, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying he was God. Now, Stop for a moment, and this is a good place to talk about Sunday just a little bit more. So we worship on Sunday. We don't worship on Saturday, generally speaking. Why do we worship on Sunday? Why don't we worship on Saturday? A couple of reasons. You might want to jot these down or go back and listen to the live stream later. One is because of the resurrection. Key word, resurrection. Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week, not the Sabbath, wasn't he? So that is really the big one. We'd say that's why. It becomes obvious when you look into the scripture. We worship, and that was a day to, to, to worship God and celebrate because Christ was resurrected from the dead. And a second reason why we tend to worship on the first day of the week is because of the word appearance. Appearance. And that was the day that Jesus would appear in those days after the resurrection to his disciples. Not every case of his appearance is it spelled out that he actually appeared on the Sabbath, but in some cases he clearly did. And so it becomes obvious, this begins to kind of have a pattern here, you know, that he seems to show up on the, on the first day of the week, Sunday, and seems to be saying something to it there. And by the way, the Holy Spirit was given on that first day of the week likely also. And then another, uh, another word that might ring a bell here is the word offering. The early church took their offerings on the first day of the week and not on the Sabbath. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week. Let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collection be made when I come. Paul was speaking here. They were taking offerings for some ministry um, situation that was going on. Some of it was in Jerusalem. They needed help. So they took offerings on the day that they came to worship. On the day they came to worship. First day of the week. Not the Sabbath. Not the Sabbath. This is the early church. This is after the resurrection of Christ. It's after uh, <clears throat> Pentecost. It's after the church begins. It's in the book of Acts in, that, in those early days, months, and years of the church. And that's why we say you don't have to give your offerings on Sunday, but it's a convenient time to do it because we're thinking about that. It's not, it's not mandated, but they, in this case they were taking a collection and so it was important. So we have the box on the back. We don't take the offering through the aisles because it's a little more private for you to put it in the box. And we just trust people to be honest about that. And it was common for people to give sometimes more than the average. But everyone was involved in it some way, shape, or form there. And then fourthly, um, the early church worshipped on Sunday, we found out, because they would break bread on that day. That would be like the the Lord's table, wouldn't it? Acts chapter 20, verse 7, says on the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. It seems that that was the obvious time. It wasn't the only time, but it wasn't a mandated time, but that was the most likely time because of what it represented. And so Christ's death on the cross really did away with the ceremonial law, not the moral law, what's right or wrong, like it's wrong to kill and so forth, and all those other um, laws of the Ten Commandments, but the ceremonial law with all the sacrifices and, and all those things that, that took place that the priest did in the temple or even the tabernacle prior to that, um, 
was done away with because all those sacrifices and things only pointed to the coming of Christ. They only pointed to the future. They only pointed to the fact that the Messiah was coming. They were an example of it, you know. So the Sabbath really ends the week while the first day of the week begins the week. The Sabbath is the seventh day. Sunday is the first day. And so the Sabbath really pictured the end of the old system of the law and the ceremonial law, and Sunday pictures the new system of worshiping on the first day of the week and so on. So uh, it ends the week while Sunday really starts it and looks toward redemption, looks toward the future day when Christ is going to return. It's really part of the thinking, I think, all through it there. And actually, you know, the final appearance of Jesus Christ on the earth before we won't see him anymore was really not just the ascension, but his appearance to the Apostle John on the Lord's Day. When John was in the Spirit, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in the island of Patmos, and the Lord appeared to him there, and that's where the book of Revelation came from, on the Lord's Day. It seems to kind of put a seal there, doesn't it, as to the importance of that thought just a little bit. So Sunday is not mandated. You can worship any day. You can worship on Saturday if you want to. But there's something significant about Sunday, and it's a good thing. It speaks of lots of things there. Uh, I talked with um, a friend who had uh, a son who, in fact, the whole family was in the Garner Ted Armstrong movement called the Worldwide Church of God. You may have heard of it. It's down in the Los Angeles area. It's where it started. It's on the radio and so forth. The World Tomorrow was this radio program. It was very popular back in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, but in time, they began to realize that their doctrine really was a doctrine of works. It was works-oriented. It was very much like the Old Testament Sadducees and Pharisees had concocted. It didn't emphasize grace. They realized that. And um, there was a, a big group of them that cried out within that church. And so the large group of them left it. And um, some of their doctrine wasn't so bad, I guess. I don't know all their doctrine, actually. But I have friends who used to be in it. And um, they forsook all that and worshiped the Lord. Now, they still like Saturday. They haven't gone away from that. But they don't have the works attached to it any longer. Some of them do. Some of them continued as before. We really don't hear about them anymore. They're very much out of the picture. Those things kind of fall away sometimes. So Jesus is now saying he was the Lord of the Sabbath. But we know that there is the first day of the week that's coming. So he's not talking about that. But just so we might see the distinction between that and the Old Testament. Now we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3, we see lordship over the Sabbath is now demonstrated. Demonstrated. I really like this. Don't let this get away from you. Your salt groups need to talk about this this week if you're having one. Jesus was being watched on the Sabbath. Said he entered the synagogue. He came to the synagogue again. He'd been in the synagogues before. We don't know where the synagogue was. It was one of many. But the people were following him. The Pharisees were. He entered the synagogue and there was a man there. And the man had a withered hand. A withered hand. It was a medical problem. So, first thing you notice, it was a withered hand. It wasn't leprosy. It wasn't cancer. Just a withered hand. Probably had it from birth. We don't know. That kind of thing can happen. And uh, some think that he may have even been planted there by the, by the legalists, the Pharisees and the rabbis. They wanted to try to trip Jesus up. Possibly, we don't know. But anyway, um, Jesus is confronted with this man. He's there. And let's say also that a withered hand is not a life-threatening injury. It's not a life-threatening injury or medical situation, right? You folks who are medical people would know that. I'm sure you can confirm that. Pretty much we understand that. And uh, if he was planted there or not, we don't know, but um, he was there, and it was uh, talking about the Sabbath, and it was on the Sabbath, and it says they were watching Jesus. These guys in the back were watching Jesus to see what would happen. 
if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. They wanted to accuse him. If he healed on the Sabbath, that means that he worked on the Sabbath. And if he worked on the Sabbath, that broke the Sabbath laws that we have established. That's they did. And therefore, we can, we can prosecute him. They were like the, uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. They were the FBI. They were the spies. They were the secret guys. They were watching every movement. They were the ecclesiastical sticklers in this whole particular story here. And they had failed to be victorious on the issue of eating and thrashing grain. And so now they were going to get him and they were going to prosecute him and they were going to execute him on some other grounds and these grounds would be the grounds of healing someone. Um, so much like to hear Knut's stories about the, the people that they, through medicine, were able to help and how that was such a blessing. But I bet you didn't mind doing medicine on Sunday or Saturday, did you? Probably not. It was a good thing. And, that, and doctors do that, and that's a good thing. So anyway, they were watching Jesus on the Sabbath. Now in verse 3 and 4, verse 3 and 4 now, brings the question to a head. He, that's Christ, said to the man with the withered hand. So he's speaking to this man. The man is there. There are probably people in this room on the Sabbath day here. And he was likely uh, teaching there. And he says to the man to get up and uh, come forward. He doesn't tell him to work. He doesn't tell him to go, uh, you know, half a mile. Just get up and come forward because it was a room full of people like we have here. And he probably wanted him so he could be seen by everybody else, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees and these folks who were there. And he asked him to come forward there. And um, this is sort of a two-part question, you might say here. First, it was lawful uh, to do things on the Sabbath. If it wasn't a big thing, it was lawful to do things, and it was lawful to protect yourself and so on. Uh, so not a problem there. Um, so we would see here healing would be a good thing to do on the Sabbath. It wouldn't be a problem for us. It wouldn't be a problem under the Old Testament law even. It wouldn't be a problem there. If your cow gets stuck in the mud, my dad used to say, if a cow gets stuck in the mud on Sunday, go and pull it out. It's okay to work, you know. And uh, we never had a cow get stuck in the mud, but we'd have some things kind of like that. <laughs> you know, we would take care of it. It wasn't, it wasn't a sin there. Medical attention was good on the Sabbath. Um, even if the life was endangered, it would normally be very good, but you could also do small kinds of things. Um, and you could not, although under the law, you could not defend yourself on the Sabbath, according to the laws that they added. You couldn't defend yourself. Josephus said that when the Syrians attacked the Jews during that intertestament period, they knew that the Jews would not self-defend themselves on the Sabbath, so they went into caves, and then the, the Syrians followed them, and they knew they wouldn't defend them, so they built fires on the outside of the cave and smoked them out, and they died in those caves because they wouldn't defend themselves. They knew how to get the Jews. And the Jews were so dedicated to following the laws that they had. So Jesus um, says here, verse 4, he says, Is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? Well, how would you answer that? Well, you don't want to do harm, but certainly it would be lawful to do good, wouldn't it? And then he says, to save a life or to kill. It kind of raises it up a level, you know. It's more important there, talking about murder here. To save a life, that's self-defense, or to kill. Obviously, it would be good to save. And what did the Pharisees say in return? Verse 4, what did it say? They didn't say anything. They were silent. They were afraid they were going to be trapped again. They were afraid they were going to be trapped. Well, come down to verse 5 now. Verse 5. The story progresses a little bit more. The exercise here of what I call volitional healing. Volitional healing. It's a little different. Note this. We'll get into it in a moment. 
Jesus looked around the room. His eyes were searching the room. He was looking at every person's eyes, you know, as he looked around the room. It was silence in there. They weren't saying anything. They were already incriminating themselves because they knew he wanted to do good and that he wanted to save a life, but they were trying to make it look like he was doing a big sin and should go to the cross for it. So Christ was upset with him. It says he was angry with them there. Anger. It's not the normal word for anger, by the way. It's interesting. There's several different words for anger in the Greek, and this one is the word for really wrath. The kind of word that you would use for fury and righteous indignation. That was the kind of anger that Jesus had. People say, well, Jesus never was angry. Well, he sure was sometimes. But it was righteous indignation. It was for the right reasons. It was not just flying off the handle and out of control. It was for the right reasons where it needed to be pinned these guys down. But it says he just looked at them with anger. He didn't say anything. And he grieved in his heart. It was deep inside of his soul as he was seeing their hearts there. And then he said to the man, notice what he says to the man. He says, stretch out your hand. Why? Well, he told him to come forward earlier. Now he wants him to stretch out his hand so that the people could see his hand there. It was all withered up, however it would look, I don't know. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Is restored. This is very interesting how Jesus did this. How are they going to, um, how are they going to pin this one on him is that he healed on the Sabbath. This healing was unique. As I looked at this, and Nancy and I discussed it a little bit, it really was unique and for the moment to show who he was as God again. He never said a thing like, be healed. He never laid hands on him like he did the leper, all of those kinds of things. Um, it was just silence there. Just wanted the people to see the hand. Never touched the man. Never commanded the demon to come out of him or anything like that. Just all of a sudden, all of a sudden the man was healed. Just, just like that, you know. And they were looking at the hand. They looked at Jesus and they really didn't know what to do. They couldn't pin this one on Jesus as breaking Sabbath laws because he didn't say anything. He didn't command anything. He didn't touch him. He didn't do anything that would be like healing. He never said for the man to be healed or anything like that. It was volitional healing. It was Jesus, um, should I say, I wouldn't say wish, but to say desiring <clears throat> that the man would be healed or commanding it in his heart, which they could not see. Volitional healing. Another one that affirmed who he was. Now, he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He said that already earlier in these texts here. But now it is affirmed again. It's affirmed by healing. Healing on the Sabbath. Now look in verse 6. Verse 6, we have the Pharisees again here. Opposition, once again. They didn't say anything. Pharisees went out. They never said a word. They got up, they went out, and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. The Herodians. How are we going to get him killed? How are we going to get him? How are we going to get this Jesus, you know? Without a word, they were trapped. They couldn't do a thing. Couldn't do a thing. Very interesting, isn't it? The Lord had ways. You know, you could only be God and think up these things. I couldn't figure that out on my own. It's one of those God kind of things that how Jesus did this. And when you look at the text long and hard and deep, you begin to see that. But it's very interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians got together. Now, who were they? You know, the Pharisees were the conservative religious leaders, believed in the they believed in the resurrection and all those kinds of things. They were the religious leaders. The Herodians were just the opposite. The, Herod, the Pharisees were, they were nationalists, Jewish nationalists. The Herodians were Jews, but they weren't nationalists. They were in favor of Rome. They were the opposite. And they weren't spiritual. They didn't care about those kinds of things. So you got the you got the ones that are supposedly spiritual and the non-spiritual and the ones that are, who are nationalists, the ones that are Roman 
a focused people, but they're all Jews. They're all coming together now. And they couldn't get together on anything else, but they could get together on this. Somebody needs to preach this in Congress, I think, sometimes, you know. And so they decide that they might destroy him. Might destroy him. It was foolish to think that, it was foolish for them to think that the killing Jesus might somehow stamp him out. It wouldn't. He would die eventually. And actually, Calvary, what happened on Calvary when Christ died on the cross, ended the ceremonial law. It was a good thing. Of course, we know in God's timetable that was planned. It was the perfect sacrifice that did away with all the imperfect sacrifices and all the little rules that they had added on top of that. It did away with the ceremonial law, but certainly it did away with all the Jewish laws. Although some of them still, there's still people that do follow those things. And those things are not in the Bible, of course. So you could say that really what they wanted to do was kill Jesus, and they did at Calvary. It made Christianity possible didn't it? It made it possible. And they, in essence, stamped out their own ceremonial law forever because of that. Well, today we are celebrating the Lord's table. I'm going to ask our fellows to prepare for that as they prepare in the back and then come up, pass out the elements. We're celebrating the Lord's table because uh, it's a day, it's, it's the first day of the week when they did that, and we like to do that. It reminds us of the beginning of things and the coming end of things in the future somehow. The Lord's Day, not the Sabbath. And we're free from the ceremonial law. We don't have to do that. We just do this little thing to remind us of what Christ did on the cross, like we have behind us here. What a wonderful thing. And uh, we don't have all the excesses of what was added on to the ceremonial laws by the rabbis. We still have the moral law. We say, was the moral law done away with? Was the Ten Commandments done away with? No, no. We still have the Ten Commandments. Those are very basic, and those that relate to them, those show that we are sinners and that we do need a Savior, and of course Christ is the Savior that we need. So I want to ask you a question before we read the text about the Lord's table. Who is your Lord of the Sabbath? Or put it this way, who is your Lord of the first day of the week, the Lord's day? Is it you? Like the Pharisees, that was their day, really. They, they made it into what they wanted. Is it you? You've made it into what you want. You can do what you want on the Lord's day. I, it's a free country, those kind of things, you know. Or, or is it the Lord's day because he died for you on that day? We're free from so much, but who is the Lord of your Sunday? Is it your bed? Sleeping? Or is it partying? Big meals? Uh, Going out, you know, recreating in some way, shape, or form. Is, is that really where it is, or is it the Lord? Are you with the Pharisees, or are you with Jesus? We have to be careful, because we can do that. We can justify it pretty easily. It's pretty easy to justify. It's not mandated, but it's the obvious practice, and we see it in the New Testament being that way. It's a wonderful thing to worship the Lord. I always wanted all my children to understand the importance of coming to the Lord's Day and coming to church. However the church did it, if they worshipped at 11 in the morning or 11 at night, it's obviously better in the morning uh, for practical reasons, but, but to understand this is important. This is important. And all of our life depends upon it. And so when we remember the Lord's table, we are remembering what He did for us, that that did away with all those little laws in the Old Testament that were so many of them, so many. The Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the 
new covenant in my blood. The new. That's coming. Look to the future. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is something just to remind us what Jesus did for us, just to once again bring it back to the reality of the cross and how important that whole thing was and how that did away with all those laws of the Old Testament. Let me ask you, um, do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know him? Is he the Lord of your, your Sunday? Are you still under the laws of the old? Uh, how do you get to be a Christian? Jesus made it very clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture says, and you shall be saved. That's a simple, simple thing. Not just believe that he exists, but believe that he died for you on the cross and believe that he took your sins uh, upon his back when he died on that cross as your sacrifice. God so loved the world that he gave his, what? Only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him, that's a real faith with repentance, would have um, forgiveness of sin and have everlasting life. And there's no other way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We can't make our own way. You can, but it's not the right way. It goes the wrong direction. Christ is the only way to heaven. And uh, we celebrate that. So when we have the Lord's table, it's, it's really for those who are believers, those who have come to trust Christ as their Savior. And if they do come to trust Christ, they should take that step of baptism because it pictures the death and the burial and the resurrection first. But we can do the Lord's table as often as we want because it's a good thing to go back and remember. Let's pray over these elements. And uh, I'll have to slip out the door as soon as we pray, but uh, pray for us as we travel to this memorial service. Uh, not too far in the distant afternoon. Father, we thank you for your grace today, and we thank you for your love and kindness, and we thank you for the Lord's table. It is a wonderful thing to remember and celebrate this, and that Jesus is the one that uh, did away with all those laws in such a masterful way. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Lord's day, and he should be Lord of our lives, our lives also, and that we should give that to him. He is our kurios, master, kurios, Lord of our life. In Jesus' name we pray that you might bless the elements of the bread and the, um, the juice or wine to remember his body, remember his blood shed for us, to take away the old and give us the new and the promise of eternal life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.